Here we are in episode four. Good. Let's uh, let's try to conclude our our review of the ten leadership approaches by by covering kind of the final three today. How about that? It sounds good. So this will be our fourth and final episode in this series on full range leadership and leadership theories in the Big Ten. Real quick, do you want to recap where we've been so far? Just a quick recap, and then where we're going today. Sure, let's do that. So uh, as we as we normally do, we'll kind of cover ground that we've already plowed, but just kind of make sure we revisit it. So. Uh, we've talked in the past that there's no consensus on the definition of a leader or what constitutes effectual leadership. Uh, there's many defi- definition, different definitions of leadership as there are people who write about it. Uh, the principle of equifinality applies when it comes to leadership, so there's more than one way to effectively skin the cat. Uh, leadership is an influence dyad between a leader, a leader and a follower, and without power that dyad doesn't work, and that the power for that dyad comes from six different sources. We've talked that leadership is a process and leaders are people. Leadership isn't people and people aren't leadership. People are leaders. And so far we've covered seven out of our 10 scholarly leadership approaches. So the seven that we've discussed so far are widely considered non-charismatic and we've talked laissez-faire, trait, behavior, transactional, path goal, situational, and leader member exchange theories to date. So today, I think it's important for us to get into the three charismatic leadership approaches that are in our spectrum, that being transformational, authentic, and servant leadership. Okay. Now, just to, I guess, reiterate some of the points that we've made in some of the earlier episodes, too, you still stand by your premise that no one theory is necessarily better than another. It's going to depend upon the situation, the followers, the leader. But what we're going today into these charismatic approaches, again, you're going to stand by your premise that these aren't necessarily better. Not necessarily better because we, you have to. I think the effective leader practices leadership in coordination with, with what they're naturally predisposed to do. Okay. And so I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, and we're going to talk extensively about authentic leadership theory. And under authentic leadership theory, the less authentic we are, the less influence we have. Can I at least get you to admit then uh, you would rather work for somebody in one of these more mature or be led by somebody who operates under one of these more mature leadership theories, more of a charismatic approach when we talk about transformational leadership or servant leadership? Can I get you to at least admit that? Well, I think generally speaking, what we need to consider is is that in any type of leader, follower, dyad, there's going to be a variety of leadership approaches applied. Certainly, we would like for our leaders to be transformational in nature, or authentic in nature, or servant in nature, um, as it might have a direct impact on how well we perform. But in any situation, there's probably going to be a variety of approaches used by a leader toward a follower in order to influence. Well, yeah, that's a good point. And I think we may have alluded to it uh, in earlier episodes. But yeah, so that's a good point. So if somebody comes in, let's say, as an authentic leader, isn't 100% authentic 100% of the time, there are going to be other theories also applied at the same time. There could be some LMX in there. Look at the relationships that that could correlate with an authentic leader in a given situation. or, Or you've got that special situation with that special person. Maybe you need to step out of where you're comfortable and maybe take a more transactional approach. Would you agree that there were a variety, just like as parents, we're not always the transformational parents. Sometimes we're tired, we're low on energy. Sometimes we're a little laissez-faire in our parenting. Sometimes we're a little more transactional, do this or else you're in trouble, versus being more Socratic and guiding with our with our own children. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah, I would. And I think that the, it's a there's probably a makeup 
of personas that we have as a leader. Uh, there are times we want to be transformational. There are times we feel like we probably need to be servant leaders. There are probably times when we know we have to be transactional. There are times when we establish a dyad with a number of followers that are different in nature, and therefore we're, we're employing leader member exchange theory. When it comes time for us to do our IDPs, we're employing some modifications of path goal theory toward leadership. So I think all of the different approaches apply. It's just what are we made up to do? You know, which ones do we employ? Or which ones, where do our natural talents reside? Right. And this goes back to this formation of our leader identity. In order to identify and actually be an effective leader, we need to know what our leader identity is and what it's comprised of. And all of the approaches that we've given everybody to date, these 10 that we've talked about, should help inform their leader identity development. What kind of leader am I and what type of approach do I like to take toward leadership? Mm -hmm. How much of these natural talents do you think stem from our passion or, or is our passion correlated with where our natural talents tend to lie with, with respect to leadership? Yeah, I think your natural talents, our natural underlying motivations is what drives us. We have to understand our motivations and what's causing us to behave in a certain way. Our, our motivations are really the explanation for the behavior that we see. And as a leader, our behaviors are attributed to our motivation, underlying motivations. So I think it's important for us to know what motivates us towards certain behaviors. And so I think that's the natural inclinations that we have to be aware of. Okay. And as we start going into the more charismatic leadership approaches, well, let's talk about charisma. When I think about charisma, I look to the past of charismatic leaders. Usually they had a strong vision. There was usually a lot of passion. And charisma isn't always something that I'm consciously assessing. It's one of those things I just feel, usually at a subconscious level, is it one of those evolutionary things that are kind of built into this, into us? Is it wrapped up in the way a person speaks, the way a person carries themselves? What is, what is charisma? Yeah, that's a great point because we know charismatic leaders when we see them. And charisma, if we, if we talk about the definition of charisma, it's a compelling appeal or draw or pull which inspires devotion in others. Now, the problem with charisma is it may not necessarily always be a good thing. Uh, usually when we talk about charisma, the power sources tend to be referential and expert. Usually people who we look up to or people who have a tremendous amount of expertise tend to be more charismatic with us. The ancient Greeks actually believed that uh, charisma was divinely or wickedly imbued, that it actually came from either evil divine forces or good divine forces. Well, that's a good point. Some people seem to be naturally charismatic. Do you think charisma is something that can be learned, though? Can I study what it is to be charismatic and make myself more charismatic? Well, I think if we look at it, where does where does charisma, where does charismatic power come from? And when we talk about it, remember, we talked about power is what drives leadership. And power normally comes from either a position or personal power. Okay. Charisma is certainly personal power. And usually that personal power is either referential in nature or derives from expertise. Certainly people who are more learned and more educated and have more experience tend to have more power. And charisma is a form of power. It's a strong appeal, a strong pull. But for me personally, um, charisma is more about how another person makes me feel. For instance, let's just take the character Sheldon from Big Bang Theory. He seems to be an expert in many things, but I wouldn't say that he's necessarily got charisma. He's got a lot of expertise. However, it doesn't translate well to how he makes others feel. Well, I think you made a great point that charisma is in the eye of the beholder. 
It's not in the eye of the transmitter. It's in the eye of the beholder. There are people you find as charismatic that I probably wouldn't. And there are people I find as charismatic you probably wouldn't either, wouldn't necessarily think that they're charismatic. So charisma is a subjective term. It's in the eye of the beholder, certainly. Okay. Just like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, charisma is in the eye of the beholder. Now, the ancient Greeks actually saw charisma, and the word really means grace or favor. Grace being favor or divinely imbued favor. So that's kind of where it ties itself back into the spiritual realm that those who are charismatic have some sort of link to either divine or wicked forces. For example, if we take Adolf Hitler, for example, we many people would say he was very charismatic. And that's true, but in a very wicked sense as opposed to a very divine sense. Right. Or think of like Jim Jones, cult leaders. Yes, a, another great example. The, the, you know, the, they just had the... Uh, the story on the History Channel, the documentary of what occurred in Jones, is it Jamestown, Jonestown? In Jonestown, the Jonestown yeah. Massacre. Yeah, Jonestown Massacre. So how do we know then when charisma is being used for the forces of good versus the forces of evil? <laughs> That's a great question, isn't it? And why is it important to these more mature leadership approaches? Right, because it, it, when, we, when we look at charisma, charisma tends to do two things as it impacts followers it usually increases their trust in the leader, and it also increases their level of engagement. You've heard the term blind loyalties associated with charisma. That's where charisma inspires elevated follower trust, and people are very motivated to do things on the, on the part of the leader. That's where we get engagement from. So that's the impact. That's the appeal or the draw or the pull that charisma has. Yeah, I was just reading this 2015 study on People that were hired, given a bonus, and what their performance was, and then another group given a charismatic speech and their performance, and the, those that received the, and then there was also a control group that received neither, and they could see that those that re, that received the bonus did perform better. Those that received the charismatic speech did almost as well. The thing is, in the long run, though, it required much less resources. Um, just how people responded to charismatic leadership. Yeah, I think of Vince Lombardi. And his great pregame speech is very charismatic speaker, was able to, through his charisma, you know, elevate follower trust and engagement in what it was they were about to do, which is really the outcome of, of charisma. And Lombardi had a strong vision as well. And he would say that winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. So a quick, concise vision that, that was clear to everyone. I see good leaders as having a strong vision, and that vision is articulated and well understood by their followers. And Lombardi, I think, is a good example. Right. Visions, visions tend to be aspirational in nature. Done correctly, a vision statement tends to tell us what we aspire to be in the future. And normally, people who are charismatic have a very strong and very well-defined aspirational vision. There's certainly uh, a tie in there. So let's talk about transformational leadership. Let's start kind of with the the one that has the most uh, depth behind it when it comes to our charismatic influence forms. Okay, but before we go into that, in a nutshell, what is transformational leadership? Well, transformational leadership, remember, when we, when we talk about transforming something, to transform something means to comprehensively modify it, to produce enhanced functioning. That's what transform actually means. Transformational leadership is very similar when we start to look at the definition. It's a change-centric influence process which seeks to comprehensively modify followers and the enterprise in order to produce enhanced functioning. 
So it's a change-centric kind of process. If somebody says, I'm a transformational leader, what they're, going to, what they're really telling you is, I'm about to change a whole bunch of things to include the people and the organization. So coming back to the Army's definition of leadership, yeah, accomplish the mission and improve the organization. Right. Improve the organization piece of the Army's definition is certainly transformational in nature. Well, as we go through leadership doctrine, what would you say the Army's preferred leadership philosophy is? Well, certainly the Army's overarching desire for leader for leaders are for them to be transformational in nature. And that's what they desire. And that's kind of the the aim of 622. It's, it's embedded in the definition and much of 622, ADRP 622 talks to transforming organizations and followers by making them better. But as we mentioned earlier, in an earlier episode, a lot of the policies and the structure of the Army, though, kind of set us up to be a little more transactional. Yeah, certainly it uses some transactional language in the accomplishment of trying to be transformational. So there's some there's some challenges then for leaders in the Army, for those who want to be transformational in a system or sometimes a bureaucracy that's designed to be more transactional. Right. Right. And it's a great point you bring up. There's a there's a friction there. There's an inherent friction in our doctrine between the transformational and the transactional. If we were looking at transformational leadership, uh, most of the people tend to lay trans- or give credit for transformational leadership to James McGregor Burns, who articulated uh, transformational leadership in his book in 1978. But he's really not the founding father. A guy named Jim Doughton in 1973 wrote a book called Rebel Leadership, where he articulated transformational leadership for the first time. And we talked a lot about Bruce Aviolo and Bernard Bass early on. Bass, in 1985, picked up on transformational leadership and really kind of brought it to the fore. We started to develop instruments to measure it. Is transformational leadership always good? As we talked about charisma, sometimes the dark side. Can transformational leadership have a dark side? Certainly. And And the way I want to kind of approach this is there are four influence actions that leaders take under transformational leadership. And I, I want to highlight for you where the dark side lies in relation to these four influence actions. Okay. So there's really four influence actions, inspirational motivation, intellectual stimulation, individualized consideration, and idealized influence, okay, known as the four eyes. Okay, let's start first then with inspirational motivation. What is that? Okay, inspirational motivation is normally where leaders challenge followers to achieve. They elevate expectations on the part of the followers. They stretch them in terms of goal attainment. And then they encourage them toward that advancement. That's where we get the inspirational motivation piece from. Sounds a lot like coaching. Uh, a lot. Could be coaching. Could be could be counseling if we do it formally. Uh, but the intent there is to push and inspire followers to achieve more than they normally do. That's what we're really driving at with inspirational motivation. Then the next one you talked about was intellectual stimulation? Yeah, intellectual stimulation is a big part. That's where we challenge our followers to be innovative and demand that they grow intellectually. Now, this is based off a fundamental assumption. The fundamental assumption for intellectual stimulation is is the smarter you are, the more educated you are, the more you can do. So that's the reason that we drive people and stimulate them intellectually is so that they advance and grow educationally and therefore can do more. Well, let's talk about innovation for just a moment, because when we look at the Army's new operating concept to win in a complex world, we talk about developing these agile, adaptive, innovative, critical, creative thinkers that can win in a complex world. So innovation is certainly an important aspect, especially for, for the future of leading change to win in a complex world. Innovation is certainly an important aspect. But how do I get people to be innovative besides just telling them to be innovative? Right. And the problem gets to be is you can't be innovative out of thin air. 
Okay, people just don't sit around and dream up something. People just don't self-discover, you know, the, the, the cure for cancer. There's an educational requirement or grounding or building of knowledge that's required in order to facilitate your innovation. We have to build up this repository of knowledge and education that we have or experience that we have so that when presented with an opportunity to be innovative, we have a base to spring forward from. And I see education as being a part of innovation. There's also got to be something more intrinsic, at least my opinion. I don't think you can just give people innovation bonuses and along with the education, expect them to really be necessarily truly innovative. Is there some sort of intrinsic factor that that's also another part of a true innovation? Well, if you think back to what we talked about with the big five and we talked about openness, in order to be innovative, there's a correlation between a person's ability to be open, remain open, experience new, dream new, vice when it comes to innovation. You have to have an openness to innovating. There are a lot of people who are very, who are very educated but are very closed to innovating because what the innovation requires is an extension from what they believe to be true. Now, are innovation and creativity essentially the same thing? Uh Let's put it this way. You can't be innovative unless you're creative. So I think that that's an important distinction to make is that we want people to be innovative, but in order to be innovative, you have to be creative. I think one one goes in hand with hand in hand with the other. Okay, let's talk about the next I. Uh, let's do individualized consideration first, uh, and let's hold off on idealized influence because that's where the dark side of transformational leadership kind of comes in. So individualized consideration when we provide what we call IC, individualized consideration to followers, there's a tailoring required. We have to identify that follower's particular shortfalls and then build developmental activities that account for those shortfalls or their strengths. All right, we're talking, a lot of times we like to talk about deficit fixing. If we're going to make somebody as great as they can be given their natural talents, we have to understand what their strengths are in addition to what their weaknesses are. And we have to tailor activities in order to do that. And as part of individualized consideration, we have to provide support for that development. And that means we've got to either resource it, remove obstacles, do coaching, do teaching, do mentoring that's required in order to make a person better in accordance with their natural strengths or eliminate a fatal flaw, not just a deficit. What are some of the things that get in the way of leaders utilizing individualized consideration? Uh, I think there, there's probably a belief amongst leaders that all followers are created equal, and they're not. Or uh, that I should treat everyone the same. Or I should treat everyone the same, and we probably shouldn't. There are some people who deserve more and want more than others. There are some people who are very content with where they are and don't desire to progress. So I think there's a, I think that tends to be the one reason that people don't involve themselves in individualized consideration. Remember, as we talked during leader member exchange theory, that every leader follower dyad is distinct. No two leader follower dyads are the same. And we have to accept that. And we have to accept it, especially if we're going to be transformational and engage in actions associated with individualized consideration. In your opinion, what does the appropriate amount of individualized consideration look like, do you think, for the typical leader in the Army? Well, it's again, it goes back to our relationship with our followers, doesn't it? Uh, there are some people who require more individualized consideration than others. Now, there is some research out there that uh, the amount of individualized consideration that, or the absence of individualized consideration 
certainly hampers goal attainment on the part of followers. So as we look at individualized consideration, just understand if you're not going to engage in individualized consideration toward your followers, expect them to perform less well. Does individualized consideration tie back to the path goal theory? Uh, yeah, I think it probably does. If we looked at it, it uh, if we looked at it from a standpoint of as part of individualized consideration, we have to remove obstacles that lie in the path of our followers going forward. So the individualized consideration has a very close sound sometimes towards servant leadership. The IC component of transformational leadership and servant leadership sometimes tend to have a little overlap in them. Same thing with path goal theory. Individualized consideration requires us to remove obstacles that are preventing our followers from going forward toward achieving the goals that we want them to achieve. And that fourth and final I? Fourth and final I is what we call idealized influence. And here's where the dark side of transformational leadership comes in. It requires leaders to role model the desired behaviors that they want from followers. They have to walk the talk. Here's the problem that we get into with transformational leadership. Over about the last 50 years, transformational leadership has been widely recognized as an exalted leader approach. But as Lee Corso says on Saturday morning, not so fast, my friend. Now, there are issues with transformational leadership when it comes to trust and dyad exchange quality, citizenship behaviors, and organizational deviance. And here's what I'm driving at with that. Idealized influence deals with the attribute of presence. Okay, if you're to role model the desired behavior and walk the talk, you are expected as a leader to role model the appropriate behaviors for followers. The problem is with transformational leadership, followers often interpret the desire of the leader, not from an organizational perspective, but from a personal perspective. They don't necessarily trust the leader's motives. Why is this leader forcing me to go forward? Why is this leader challenging me? Why is this leader demanding that I pursue things? Is it because of the good of the organization or is it because that leader's personal gain is associated with my gain? So idealized influence and the attribute of presence is often negatively impacted by transformational leadership, transformational leaders. Could that be mitigated by leaders communicating their motives? Certainly, certainly. And you make a great point, and, and, and we need to talk a little bit about culture here, okay, because motives drive the culture of the organization, a leader's motives. For example, under transformational leadership, transformational leadership tends to create what we call an empowered dynamic culture. The culture, I'm going to define culture for you here because there are a million different definitions of culture. Culture is defined as the psychological environment of the organization and the way in which you and I interact, the way in which people interact in the organization. Transformational cultures are significantly different than servant cultures. And when a leader articulates their motivation or their approach to leadership, it drives the culture of the organization. If the leader stands up and says, I'm transformational in nature, we're going to go forward, we're going to achieve, we're going to win, that is significantly different and will produce a significantly different culture than if the leader stands up and says, I am a servant leader. My job is first and foremost is to serve all of you. Creates a completely different culture. One is empowered dynamic culture, one we would associate with transformational leadership. The other, servant leadership, is what we would call altruistic and nurturing or spiritual generative culture. Completely different in terms of the psychological environment in the organization 
and the way in which people interact in that organization. When culture comes up, I also often hear climate come up at the, in the same conversation. My opinion, according to me, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are when we talk with respect to culture and climate. So we talk about the psychological environment, person-to-person interactions. I see that as something that usually slower to change. There's usually a lot of inertia behind that. And, and it can take oftentimes longer than the, say, if we look at military leaders, the two or three years they get in that position before they move on versus climate, which can be changed in, in a relatively short amount of time. I don't know. What are your thoughts on uh, what climate is then and how that can be influenced by? Culture is dependent. Let's, let's assume that culture is dependent on the leader and the approach that they take to leadership. The problem is, is leaders don't stand up and articulate their approach to leadership. And therefore, people are left floundering in the culture to understand the leader's approach and therefore behave accordingly. That's where I think the breakdown occurs when it comes to the leader's approach and the culture of the organization's connection. I think that's where we want to go with that. Okay, so we're talking about uh, transformational leadership here. Remember now, transformational leadership has can be either virtuous or non-virtuous. Okay, Bernard Bass once said that transformational leaders can wear the black hat of a villain or the white hat of a hero, depending on where they fall in transformational leadership. And this goes back to transformational leadership. The research is pretty strong that when it comes to a goal accomplishment and achievement, it is a preeminent form. However, it does have a dark side, and that dark side is normally associated with behaviors of people in the organization and organizational deviance. I would submit to you, and I want you to consider that perhaps those environments that we would consider toxic would probably overwhelmingly tend to be transformational in nature. Let's establish a clear understanding of what toxic is. I think I, I hear that word thrown around a lot, and some people use the word just because they don't like the leadership. Well, what really what what is toxic leadership? Well, I think toxic leadership is when the motives of the organization have been corrupted in the name of achievement. Um, I think if we were to peel back the skin of a toxic environment, we would find the underlying piece or the underlying motive behind that whole organizational structure is about achievement goal attainment and winning at the expense of people and at the expense of the established rules under which the organization functions. And so I think that's where toxicity comes in. We're willing to look beyond the rules that we know we shouldn't be breaking, and we really don't care about people in the name of the pursuit of the goal or their overarching attainment. So I think that's where we probably look for a toxic environment. Okay, It's detrimental to people, and it's probably going to get us in trouble with the rules that we start to look at a toxic environment. And the reason is, is we've probably become overly focused on attaining a certain goal or achieving a certain end. How would you recommend that leaders keep balance? What should they keep in mind when, when, they, when we talk about balance with avoiding a toxic environment? Right. And this is where ethics has to come in. Our ethics and character development have to come in. The problem gets to be, and I would almost guarantee you this, if we looked at a toxic environment, we would probably find leaders who knew they weren't supposed to be doing something and chose to violate ethical principles or morality in the pursuit of that goal, usually because they believe either A, they're entitled to seek that goal, or they rationalized, rationalized breaking the rules or negatively impacting people. They rationalized away those two impacts in the pursuit of the goal. So it's probably a rationalization has occurred. So the ethical bulwark, there should be an ethical bulwark 
against toxic leadership someplace in the organization. But again, your main point is that toxic cultures tend to be overwhelmingly transformational. I think so. I think if we were to peel back the skin on toxic environments, we would find a strong uh, transformational approach that is driving that organization. But transforming in the wrong way. Right, transforming in the wrong way, in, in the name of something, in the, name, in the pursuit of a goal, in the pursuit of attainment, in the pursuit of winning. Think in terms of, let's, let's use the Patriots, for example. Okay, how many times have the Patriots been accused of cheating or caught cheating? Deflate gate, the, the spying of the coaches on the other side that cost them first-round draft pick. So there are organizations out there that will bend the rules or break the rules. They know same thing in NASCAR racing. They will bend the rules or break the rules in pursuit of the higher goal. And sometimes that creates a toxic environment, especially as we start to break laws. Right? There is a dark side to transformational leadership, and it's usually in the idealized influence area because the leaders are responsible for setting a culture that allows rules to be broken or people to be harmed or negatively impacted. All right, so you want to talk a little bit about authentic leadership? Let's talk authentic leadership. Okay, authentic leadership really kind of originates with the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks on, on the side of Apollo's temple inscribed the term temet nox, or know thyself. Temet nox requires authenticity on the part of leaders at two levels, both the individual and the organizational level. Now, the organizational level is easy to cover because organizational, when we talk about an authentic organization, what we're talking about is the organization practices the values that it espouses. There is no gap between what we espouse as a value and what we actually do. That's authenticity at the organizational level. Leader authenticity is a little bit different. Leader authenticity, we're talking about a leader being genuine to who they are. All right, we talk about the personas that leaders have. What's the validity of that persona? Is it genuine? Is it in line with what their capacities are? And the problem gets to be is whether or not their authenticity has been corrupted. Okay, is the authenticity to the point where it's no longer influential? And I'll use the example I've had. I've had people who've taught me classes before that will show up in a tie and a suit coat on the first day in the attempt to put on a persona of competence. Over the course of a week, it becomes clear that that is simply a persona and an inauthentic portrayal of who they actually are. So at that point, there's a drop in influence. So in order for authentic leadership to be effective and for us to have authentic influence, it has to be in line with who we really are. And that's the part about knowing thyself. We have to know what our, what our capacities are. Okay, we have to know where our shortfalls are. We have to be able to admit our mistakes. And in not doing so, we become less authentic. Remember, authenticity is not about either authentic or inauthentic. It's the degree of authenticity that the leader has. People who have a lower degree of authenticity tend to be less influential than people with a high degree of authenticity. I've seen cases where somebody might have otherwise been an authentic leader, but the forces that be over time, turn them more into politicians than authentic leaders. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? And sometimes there are times where we, because, just because of rank structure, uh, positional power, I, I, I'm required to be a yes man. And I think, you're, I think you're hitting on a good point here because it really speaks to authenticity. What's the authentic nature of that person? If somebody is hyper-politicized, the chances are they're usually hyper-individualized. The two cannot, cannot coexist. People who tend to become politicians are worried about themselves and their positioning in the organization at the root cause of it. 
And so as a result, they've gone from being probably what they were authentically to a point where they reached a certain level and became concerned about themselves and they changed who they were or they're no longer authentic. Their, their degree of authenticity has dropped. And that's what we need to think about in terms of authentic leaders. What's their degree of authenticity? Probably back in the day when they were not forced by political pressure to be someone they're not, to be inauthentic, they're probably much closer. Their degree of authenticity was probably much more true, much more genuine. As they've moved up and assumed positions of importance and their personal interests have grown, now they've become more inauthentic or their, their true nature is actually being revealed. And I think that's an important distinction that you make. If you change over time and you change your approach, the question you probably should ask yourself is, am I less authentic now than what I was? And as a result, am I less influential? What are your thoughts on that? I see it can go either way. If I change due to receiving newer and better information, let's say I listen to this podcast and have an aha moment and I'm going to change my approach, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm less authentic. Not it, necessarily, but if, and I agree with you. And authentic doesn't necessarily mean static. No, it doesn't. It means whether or not you're genuine to yourself, whether or not you're true to yourself. Like I said, probably the question we ought to ask ourselves is, if I've changed over time, have I done so in accordance with my authentic nature or have I made myself less authentic in the process? That's the question we probably should ask ourselves. Right. The thought process being there is the more authentic you are, the more influence you have. And when we go back to our critical thinking episode, we talk about the intellectual traits. It really comes down to, I think, the intellectual courage and intellectual integrity. Am I am I true to self or am I going to blow with the wind in favor of, of whatever and say whatever I need to say, do whatever I need to do to get something that benefits me? Right. And when we talk and we talk about authenticity, think about it in terms of consistency. Authentic leaders tend to be very consistent. They don't tend to change much in terms of their from day to day, the way that they do things. So there is a, a nature of consistency associated with authenticity where authentic, authentic leaders tend to be very be the same today as they were yesterday. Mm -hmm. Okay, and they're going to be the same tomorrow as they were today. There's a there's not a significant divergence in their behaviors over time. And they're not posers. They're certainly not posers. To be a poser it would be to go I've heard um, I was doing some consulting work when I lived in Dubai and I heard uh, one of the CEOs say he can look the part and he can speak the part but he can't execute the part. Okay, so this this person that he was speaking of was really posing as something he wasn't. Very inauthentic and a very high degree of inauthenticity on the part of that individual. What is it about authentic leaders that makes them so effective? Well, the intent there is for you to be consistent, reliable, and followers see them in their true light and are therefore influenced by them at a higher level. There's no question on the part of followers, what is their true motive? Their motive and the behaviors that they exhibit are consistent with one another. So be authentic. Don't try to be something you're not. And are we ready to transition to servant leadership? Yeah, let's talk servant leadership. Uh, servant leadership, and, and it, we have a, a colleague here who said, you know, it really doesn't do as much good to ask somebody about servant leadership because everybody wants to be a servant leader. And I don't necessarily know that that's true. Uh, we'll talk about that some. But servant leadership is quickly gaining the reputation as the, the highest or most exalted form of leadership. 
And this started with Robert Greenleaf in his publications back in, was it the 60s? Yeah, in the 70s, you know, Robert Greenleaf from Indiana State was kind of the person who articulated the modern version of servant leadership and what it meant. But servant leadership conceptions have been around since the time of Noah's Ark. It's not a new conception. And at its nexus, if you think about it, at its nexus, servant leaders are servants first, leaders second. So if you, if you think back in terms of time, 500 years before Jesus walked the earth, uh, the Chinese intellectual Lao Tzu, no relation to Sun Tzu, uh, said that a leader is best when followers take credit for their own work, which is what you really want to have. And that leaders uh, don't do what they desire, they do what's in a follower's best interests. So conceptions of, of servant leaders have been around for a long time. So with regards to a servant leader, then it really is about others. It really is about the organization versus about personal power, personal influence. There's that desire, that motivation to, to really want to, to help others. Right. It's very follower-centric, which is a little bit different than most of the, the leadership conceptions that we're used to. It's follower-centric. It's participatory. It seeks collaborative decision-making. It seeks follower growth and is meant to make work and life agreeable work-life agreeable. Now, Larry, I saw a presentation that you gave once, and it had all these leadership theories on it, and servant leadership was pegged at the very end of the spectrum. What, what did that mean exactly? Why was servant leadership on your slide above all the other leadership theories? There were more than 10, too. There was like country club leadership and other things, other crazy things I saw on the slide. What, why was servant leadership? Well, we have servant leadership down at the high end of the charismatic spectrum, and maturity spectrum. Remember, it's a combination of both maturity and charisma. Uh, servant leadership tends to be included in the charismatic forms. There's a strong pull toward people who are servant leaders. The pro the issue with why it's why the, the to answer your question on why it's at the far end or the high end of the spectrum deals with maturity. Think of the maturity level required to practice servant leadership effectively. Um, I would submit to you. Probably in our younger days, we were probably we probably lacked the maturity to be servant leaders. Mm -hmm. We probably also lacked the positional influence necessary in order to practice servant leadership. It's very difficult sometimes at the at the lower levels to practice servant leadership. Let's talk about ego for a moment. Then um, ego can be. I mean, we need a certain amount of it to be healthy. It's what gives us the motivation to you know to. Without it, we'd be depressed probably and have no self-esteem. But to think of ourselves highly enough to, let's get out of bed, let's get this a shot, let me put myself out there. But ego can also run amok or become egomaniacs. Where, where does ego come into play, though, when it comes to, let's say, well, any of the leadership styles we're talking about, but specifically with servant leadership? Yeah, let's, so let's talk about ego for a minute and ask, what is the balance for ego? If we have too much, what keeps us from having too much ego? The answer is probably some sort of humility. And I would submit to you that as we get older, we tend to develop more humility. As we mature, we tend to have more humility. Servant leadership requires significant humility on the part of the leader in order to sublimate themselves to followers and serve followers first. And that's one of the seven precepts of servant leadership is to place followers before you. So I think that when it comes to ego, the balancing mechanism for that, too much ego we would usually associate with arrogance. And and the opposite behavior of too much arrogance is humility or humbleness. Well, we talk about one's natural talents and abilities. 
What do you think that looks like for somebody who's geared more toward being a servant leader versus one of the other leadership types we've talked about? Yeah, I think people who are naturally geared, it's a, it's a great question that you ask. I think people who are naturally geared to be servant leaders tend to be altruistic in nature. They tend to be uh, nurturing in nature. They tend to care about people. Uh, they, they tend to place pe- other people before themselves. Uh, they're concerned about others in terms of how others are doing and how others need to improve. Uh, they're willing to sacrifice on the part of others. So I think that those kind of behaviors that we see from people tend to point out people who are naturally inclined to be servant leaders. If we want to be authentic when it comes to being a servant leader, we probably need to understand what that really means in terms of our behaviors. Now, is a servant leader also authentic? Um, no, not necessarily. Uh, for example, uh, I I talked with a, uh, a lieutenant colonel in the army the other day who saw who wanted to be a servant of people with the idea that by being a servant of other people they would accomplish more for the organization. So really, there the motive is somewhat corrupted. The motive is not to really care about people. The motive is to accomplish a goal. But in order to do that, I'm going to take care of the people. Okay, so are people really the vision, the end state versus a means to an, another end? Right, right. He saw people as a means to accomplishing something in the future, to winning, to goal attainment. And he realized he could not he could not attain those things or achieve that goal unless he had the people. So the people were a means, not an end. With servant leadership, people are the ends. With regards to servant leadership, is it a case of either you, you got it or you don't? Well, I think you have a natural inclination toward it or you don't. And I think you have a natural inclination toward different leadership approaches. As we sit here and talk about the 10 leadership approaches, there are probably some out there that resonate more with you than others. And I think that's probably what you ought to identify is which of those resonate with me and let me become very proficient at using those approaches. Now, in the intermediate course and the advanced course as well, we use a psychometric instrument to the, the strengths deployment inventory SDI. And it's based on three primary colors. The it, we, Well, it really comes down to people processes or performance. And that those that come out with the motivations being anchored more in the people, I don't know, to me seem like they might be more predisposed to being servant leaders. Is, is there anything to that? Yeah, I think there's there's research out there. And let's talk, let's, let's leave it at the servant leadership arena for now. Um, if you're, if you have a blue SDI, okay, if you have an altruistic nurturing motivation set, you are naturally inclined to be a servant leader, especially if you have a high score in that area. For example, the the same thing applies toward the hub. If you have a hub motivation value set, if it's cohering and flexible, you tend to be naturally inclined to be a situational or contingent leader. So there's some correlations between your underlying motivations and which approach you naturally will adopt. There is some tie in there. What advice would you have for for the listener that stuck through all four parts of this podcast series and in trying to develop their own leader identity? What would be your advice? Well, the first thing you do is be true to yourself. Don't try to be something you're not. Just because the Army says that transformational leadership is the desired end, it may not work best for you in terms of an influence approach. You may engage in inauthentic behaviors because it's not in accordance with who you naturally are. So... Find the leadership approach that works for you and become very good at it. What advice would you have for somebody who wants to learn more about who they are naturally predisposed to be? Right. You got to look hard at yourself. Timit Knox, authenticity, right? Authentic leadership. That's the basic tenet. Know thyself. 
the more feedback you get about yourself and the more understanding you have about yourself will lead you to the appropriate approach. So the more of that we have, the better. And remember the principle of reversibility. Now we've talked about the principle of equifinality. Okay, there's more than one way to skin a cat when it comes to leadership. Use the principle of equifinality to identify what's the best approach for you. If you can't, employ the principle of reversibility, also known as the golden rule. As a leader, when you're a leader, lead others the way you want to be led. And as a follower, follow others the way you would have others follow you. So if you can, if you can apply those two rules, your chances of success in the leadership arena are pretty good. Well, that goes back to a walk in the walk. We, when we looked at the four eyes under transformational leadership, we got to walk. We got to walk the talk. We can't just. It can't be do as I say. It's got to be do as I do. Okay. Or I will do as I say, and I expect you to too. Um, oh, you know, we didn't really get into the seven foundational per, uh, precepts. Okay, so let's talk the seven foundational precepts of servant leadership. Now, leadership as an approach is based off of a servant philosophy. A philosophy. When we talk about a philosophy. Philosophies are made up of two things. Okay, they're made up of precepts and principles. A precept is a hard and fast rule to which a philosophy conforms. A principle is the way in which a philosophy more or less operates, a guideline per se. Okay, so there are seven precepts associated with servant leadership. There are seven hard and fast rules to which the servant leader must adhere if they're going to practice a servant philosophy. Okay, and those are ethical altruism, follower empowerment, follower growth, conceptual skill, self-sacrifice, a holistic approach to work, meaning that work is important as your personal life, and emotional connectedness. I must be able to empathize with those I lead. Uh, let's run through those real quick because I understand individually what each of those words means, but together they probably represent something a little deeper. Let's start with number one, ethical altruism. What is that in a nutshell? Right. That means that others come before us. Follower empowerment then. So we're giving power versus hoarding the power. Right. Remember now, empowerment is a statement of trust. When we empower someone else, we're making a statement of our trust level with them. And as a result, when it comes to servant leadership, we have to trust on the part of followers. We have to accept risk on their behalf. We can't trust someone unless we accept risk on their behalf. And empowerment is a statement of trust. So therefore, under servant leadership requirements, we are required to trust our followers and empower them. Follower growth. Certainly, we want to improve them. Uh, there's one of the, the uh, I had a friend of mine who's a, a very big advocate of servant leadership. And he said, uh, I'm not worried about the organization. I'm worried about the people. And if I can make the people good enough, I won't have to worry about what the organization is doing. Follower growth means we want followers to go forward and improve themselves, both personally and professionally. All right, conceptual skill. Servant leaders require significant mental acumen in order to practice servant leadership effectively. So we have to understand and be competent in most things when it comes to conceptualizing not only the organization, how to attain the, the organization's goals, but also how to make people better and how the two tie together. Okay, self-sacrifice. Self, bef others before us, others before us. I think uh, there was a there's a great Indian philosopher named Chanakya, and uh, I think Chanakya said, "Servant leaders or leaders are paid servants, and their position entitles them to servanthood and nothing else." So that kind of 
you know, cap encapsulizes the nature of the servant leader, that leaders are paid servants and their position entitles them to servanthood and nothing else. So you're not there to fleece the organization for your own personal benefit. You're there to use the resources at your disposal in the support of others. They come before you do. A holistic approach to work? Yeah, holistic approach to work is this idea that personal and professional life are not divorced, um, that we want to make work less. Uh, I, heard, I had somebody say a couple weeks ago, I've got to get up and go to work today. And their spouse said, that's right, it's work. It's not fun. If it were fun, they would call it fun, but it's not, it's work. The idea there is to narrow the gap between work and fun to the point where people enjoy and prosper in their work environment. And the Army even has their own five dimensions of holistic fitness that talk about keeping things in balance. It's more than just work, but, you know, maintaining the, the social aspect, family. And right. And when it comes to servant leadership, what servant leaders try to do is to ensure that the personal and the professional are taken care of. The thought process being there is if there's something that's affecting the person personally, they're not going to grow professionally and they're not going to be happy at work or what they do. They're going to be distracted, derailed, and be less effective. And the final one, the emotional connectedness. Yeah, we want, we want servant leaders to empathize with the people that they lead. Uh, we want them to understand the people that they lead. And we want to know, we want to be connected to them, not only on a personal or not only on a professional plane, but on a personal plane. Why are people angry? Why are people upset? Uh, what? Why are people uh, performing poorly? Um, why are people not progressing? What is it that's causing people uh, emotional distress that, that's preventing their advancement? So that's kind of what we're looking for. Now, keep in mind, ADRP 622 does talk to servant leadership in multiple ways. Um, for example, it says that service to followers is as important as results, which kind of goes back to our self-sacrifice, service to followers. It directs Army civilians to be committed to selfless service, not selfish service. And it, and it puts forth that leaders are supposed to put national and follower welfare before their own. So there are conceptualizations of servant leadership in ADRP 622. Now, I've got a question for you, too, Larry, if you're willing to share. Sure. And it, with regards to your own leader identity, you had a long career in the mm -hmm. Army and got out as a lieutenant colonel. You were in various leadership positions. Later on, got... Various positions as a leader. Various positions as a leader. Thank you. And then subsequently got a PhD in leadership. With exposure to all this information now, how has that changed your own leader identity? And with being true to who you really are, who you were born, your natural dispositions, I guess balanced with the awareness of what you've gained over time, how has that shaped your own uh, leader identity? And I ask that just with regards to the listener now in mind, how, how might this change? How might this look? And how do you kind of balance with these other concepts that may, they, they sound great and effective and sound like great environments to work under. I want to be one of those, but Maybe I'm not inclined to be this. I don't. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think the the uh, the idea that man, I wish I'd have known then what I know now. Uh, I would have been you know a hundred times better leader than than what I was. Um, I think my natural inclination is to be transformational in nature. I do understand, and and all of the, uh, admittedly, all of the nefarious things associated with transformational leadership. I'm guilty of them. So I think the uh, looking back on it, I would 
because my natural inclination is to be transformational and I understand the dark side associated with it, I would attempt to mitigate the, the dark side of transformational leadership with more, with more things that would prevent the dark side of transformational leadership coming forward. So I think that looking back on it, that's what I would do. I understand my leader identity uh, much better now than I did. I understand what motivated me um, much better now than I did. That, that's kind of past practice. But looking back on it, knowing the dark side of transformational leadership that's associated with it and my desire to be transformational, I would have balanced that and I would have made sure I surrounded myself with people who would have helped balance that nefarious side of transformational leadership. And for me, I always am afflicted with my strong visions and how we progress to the future. But you know, based on our discussions that we've had here through these four episodes, I don't see myself as having a high level of charisma. One thing that I lack is patience, I think, especially slowing down. I'm, I'm constantly go, 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 go. I don't know what, what type of leader might I be more inclined to be. I can see the vision. I got, can see it out on the horizon. I'd, I'd love to be transformational and take an organization here, but I don't, I don't think I, I've got the patience to be a servant leader. I really, if others are motivated, I'm going to love to help them help themselves, but I, I don't have the patience, or the energy to stop what I'm doing to try and pick up those that are falling behind. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I think there's something to be made for ensuring when we are leaders to surround ourselves with people who address the shortcomings we know we have in ourselves. And I think recognition of the shortcomings that you, you see in yourself and, and ensuring that if you, most of the time leadership is not a one person endeavor. I mean, even here we have supervisors and we have supervisors of supervisors and we have enterprise level leaders. Usually leadership is not a sole endeavor. I think the key is to Surround yourself with pe- if when you recognize a shortcoming is surround yourself with people who co- help compensate for that shortcoming and give their advice to you credence. Simply because you're the leader doesn't mean their advice is your advice or your thinking is better than theirs. So be humble enough to accept input from others uh, when they're trying to offset the the weaknesses or the shortcomings that you have. All right, thank you, Larry. And we welcome your feedback. Please write us at usarmy.lovenworth.tradoc.mbx.amsc-podcast at mail.mail. Or you can just write us at amscpodcast at gmail.com. 